What do you see? A duck. A duck. Does everyone see a duck? Anyone see a different animal? A rabbit. Is it a rabbit or is it a duck? That's, you know, do you like ice cream or chocolate sort of question, isn't it? Who, who firstly, who sees the rabbit straight away when they look at it? Put your hand up, yep. Who saw the duck sort of first? Oh, there's a husband and wife in dispute at the back there. Um, it's both, of course, isn't it? It's an illusion. It's deliberately crafted to have both a duck and a rabbit uh, visible to our eyes. I was uh, doing some reading in some, over summer, and there's a pluralist and a couple of uh, prominent pluralists, uh, those that believe that all roads lead to God and there's no ultimate truth in any one religion, who use this image quite cleverly to argue that what you're looking at is just culture, that a religion is like that picture. It's it doesn't really matter if you see a duck or a rabbit, it's all the same, it's all leading to the same destination, the same place, the same person that is God, that God is the ultimate uh, reality and there is no ultimate reality or truth in any one particular religion. It doesn't matter if you worship Allah or Ganesh or Brahman or Jesus, at the end of the day, it's just our culturally influenced pathway towards God. It sounds so inclusive. It sounds so tolerant. And yet I want to argue it's actually quite arrogant. You see, a couple of things I want to say about the pluralists and their argument, which sounds so clever, so tolerant, but I would argue is actually arrogant. The first one is they're using an illusion as their supporting argument. It's not actually a picture of just a rabbit. It's not a picture of just um, a duck. It's both deliberately combined by someone who's created it to trick us, to play a game with us. And it's a fun game, isn't it? The other thing, and this is worse, I think, this is where the arrogance lies, is the pluralists make up less than 1% of the world's population. Less than 1%, in fact, a tiny fraction of 1% of the world's population are people who believe that there is a God and that all religions lead to that God and there are no ultimate truth in any one religion. So that's 1% are right, and 95% of this world's population, if you take out the tiny percentage that are atheists and agnostic, 95% of this world follow one of the great world religions. And the pluralists have said, actually, we have the truth, you have no truth. Uh, you've sort of got a pathway that's been influenced by culture, but we know the, the ultimate truth, you don't. It's quite arrogant. It actually says that the very central and core things that we hold as Christians are completely untrue. And it says that of every other major faith. So there's an arrogance that sort of hides underneath this pluralist narrative. And Psalm 96 will have none of it. As we explore Psalm 96, we're going to see that to God only belongs glory. That all the other gods and idols are nothing. That Yahweh, the Lord, is the only one, uh, as he's revealed to us in the Bible, and then uh, in the New Testament through his son Jesus, is the only one worthy of our worship and adoration. Let's think about God's glory for a moment as we see it in this psalm. From verse 4, in the middle of our psalm, we read, For great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, 
For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. In the middle of the psalm, there's a comparison between Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh being the name that was given to Moses at the burning bush, when Moses said, well, who do I say you are? What's your name? What will I tell Pharaoh? And he said, Yahweh. It means, in English, the Lord. So there's a comparison between God, the Lord, and the gods of the nations. Let's have a look at that comparison. Firstly, God, what do we learn from this section of the psalm about God? There's four descriptors of God. He is great. He's worthy of praise. He's to be feared. And most importantly, in this psalm, he's the creator of all that there is, this universe's creator. And so we read, because he created all that there is, everything should give him glory. To him only belong splendor and majesty and strength and glory. It's an impressive list of descriptors of God and responses that are called for uh, that should be given to God. Well, how do the gods of the nations fare as we make these, this comparison? They only get one descriptor. The gods of the nations are idols. That's all they get. The gods of the nations are idols. The word literally means nothing, nothings. The gods of the nations are nothing. In Isaiah 44, we read of God mocking the idols of the nations. And in the middle of that chapter, Isaiah 44, God is saying, how ridiculous is this? A man chops down a tree and he chops up that tree and he uses some of the same tree, the same wood from that tree, to make his fire to cook his dinner. And then after dinner, he gets another bit of the tree, he fashions it into some sort of godlike looking stick figure, and he bows down and worships it. The same piece of wood, the same tree, gets fire to cook his dinner, and suddenly is worthy of his worship. And God, in Psalm 44, mocks the foolishness of the person who does that. God says these idols, the idols of the nations in, Psalm, in Isaiah 44, they know nothing, God says. They see nothing. They understand nothing. They are nothing, God says. We get the same idea in Paul's writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. Paul says in chapter 8, we know that an idol is nothing. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. And so our psalm, Paul in the New Testament and God himself in Isaiah teach the same thing. Only God is glorious, worthy of our worship and adoration. All other idols are mere nothing. Well, you might say, I can see how that applies, Scott, to Hinduism with its many gods, maybe to the animistic religions of the primitive tribes. But what of Islam and Judaism? Don't they share the same God of the Old Testament with us? And there's an element of truth to that 
Question? But you see, since the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus, we understand the God of the Old Testament through the God revealer, Jesus. Jesus came and was given at his birth the name Emmanuel. God is with us. And God said to hear him was to hear God, to see him was to see God. God said that he never taught anything that it wasn't revealed to him by his father. Jesus claimed to be the only way, God's appointed way of connecting humanity to God. If you want to know God, relate to God, experience communion with God, be adopted by God, the only God-given means or method to do that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is picked up in John 3, in a famous verse, but then I'm going to read on a little bit in John Chapter 3, speaking of Jesus, we read these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the bit we know so well. But it continues. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him, through Jesus. Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And then later in the chapter, picking up at verse 35 of John 3, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Judaism and Islam reject Jesus as the unique Son of God and the connection point between people and God. If we want to know Jesus, we must, uh, if we want to know God the Father, we can only do that through Jesus. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm preaching a very exclusive message today. But before you judge me, or perhaps judge the God that I'm talking about, let's press on and look at the other aspects of the psalm because they will reveal to us God's heart for the nations, God's desire to draw the people of the nations to himself. Let's look at the call from God to the nations for a universal response. Verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. This psalm calls for every man, woman and child on earth to give to God glory, praise, adoration and worship. For God alone is worthy of those things. God alone is glorious. Our psalm, the rest of the Bible, uh, reveals to us God's heart of compassion and love for the nations. God's desire for people from every nation to know him the psalmist captures this by telling the nations to ascribe. That means just to give. To give to God the glory that is his due. 
to acknowledge his glory, his strength, and then to draw near to him in worship. The way for Muslims, agnostics, Jews, atheists, Buddhists, Hindus, Christians, to experience the love of God and a relationship with God is to place one's faith in Jesus, the God revealer, the one who breaks down the division between humanity and God, between a sinful creation and a perfect creator. For as Peter testifies later in the book of Acts, talking about Jesus, there is no salvation. Sorry, there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name, no other name but Jesus, under heaven, by which we may, must be saved. So rather than being an exclusive message, Psalm 96 actually contains this worldwide universal invitation from God to the nations to come to him. That's always been God's plan. It's certainly revealed in the life and the teachings of Jesus and in his commission for us to take the gospel to the nations. It's certainly been the way of the church. Christianity, since the time of Jesus, the last 2,000 years, has become the most diverse people group on earth. Christianity's founder, Jesus, scandalised his peers by tearing down cultural and racial barriers. Jesus' last command to his followers to, was to go and make disciples of every nation, of every nation, inviting people to come and become disciples, followers of him, so that they could connect to God the Father. At the end of history, the last book in the Bible reveals how at the end of history, people from every tribe and tongue and people group and nation on earth will be gathered together, worshipping God and enjoying God's company and peace. As apologist Rebecca McLaughlin says in her book, Confronting Christianity, uh, she points out that the average Christian today is likely to be an African woman of colour. She, she argues that if you care about diversity, if you care about diversity, you shouldn't dismiss Christianity. It's the most diverse, multi-ethnic and multicultural movement in all of history, she writes. From the Bible's first page to its last, we are consistently given a picture of God whose desire and intent is that people from every nation would come to know and worship him as God, saviour and friend. Well, how are we to respond to that? How is the church to respond to this message contained in Psalm 96 that there is only one God, there is only one worthy of our adoration and worship. All the gods of the nations are mere nothing, idols, and that God has a heart and a desire that people from every nation come to know and worship him. What does that leave us to do? How is the church to respond to the revealed heart and passion of God for the nations? We read this. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. 
Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We, the church, are called to sing, to praise, to proclaim, to declare and to tell. To sing God's story to a watching world. To praise God's name to all who will listen. To proclaim his salvation day after day that others might come to know and love God through faith in the Lord Jesus. To declare God's marvellous deeds, what he has done for the world and to declare his glory to the ends of the earth. Psalm 96 is a missional psalm. Only God is glorious and worthy of human worship. God's desire is that the nations know this truth and come and ascribe to him the glory that he is worthy of. God's people must share God's concern and heart for the nations. God's people have been entrusted with the task of taking this message of our glorious God to the ends of the earth. The Tasmanian Anglican Church has a vision that's bigger than your vision. Uh, you have a vision, a church for Lindisfarne making disciples of Jesus. That's a good vision. The Church of Tasmania is a bit bigger than yours. It's a bit grander. A church for Tasmania making disciples of Jesus. It's a great vision. I'm all on board. But is it large enough? How does it fit with Psalm 96? God's concern is not just for Tasmania. God's concern in this psalm and through the whole Bible is for the nations, for people of every nation, every man, woman, boy and girl. This church is to have a heart for and a special ministry to the people of Lindisfarne and the surrounding suburbs, that people might come to hear the story of Jesus and be connected to the God that is worthy of their adoration and worship. This church is given the task to be about singing, praising, proclaiming, declaring and telling the story of God that culminates in the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's your missional task. But this church is also to have a heart like God has a heart for the nations. This church is to be involved in God's global mission of reaching the nations in and through Jesus. CMS has a big vision. We want a world that knows Jesus. We partner with local churches, as we saw, to set aside and send people long-term, cross-culturally, to the ends of the earth, to sing, praise, proclaim, declare and tell the story of God and of his Son. And, of course, you know this. And you're already involved in doing that in a number of ways, supporting Abraham in Cambodia, and now with your own missionaries from Tasmania heading to the nation of Cambodia to work in a rural Bible college that village partner, uh, pastors might be equipped to reach their own locals, uh, own local people in rural Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia is a, a country of 15 million people, of which between 1% and 2% follow the Lord Jesus, of which there are 42 unreached people groups. These are people groups that have never had the gospel of God's grace and love and desire and concern for them, told to them. 42 unreached people groups who are yet to hear the good news of Jesus. Jesus' death for their sins and the reconciliation to the Father that his death makes possible for them.
So please keep praying, keep giving, and work hard on how you're going to care for Morris and Amanda. That's the CMS way. Pray, care, give, go. We pray, care, and give to those who go. Email their news. Get their newsletter, but then write back to them and let them know what's going on in Lindisfarne. Let them know of how you're trying to reach this neighbourhood for Jesus so they can be praying for you just as you're praying for them. Think about other ways this church can be involved in God's global mission. CMS has missionaries serving in over 40 countries trying to proclaim God's glory to the nations that people might come to know and love his son Jesus. Well, there's an urgency to this task as I bring my talk to a close. The reason we should be do about doing this locally and we should be involved in doing this globally is a day of judgment is coming. The psalm ends in this way. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The, Lord, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He, God, will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, and lots of praise, and then picking up at verse 13. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. God in Jesus has provided the nations and their peoples with all that they need to know God and to be adopted into God's universal family. Our task is to daily be telling God's story in the sure and certain knowledge that one day God will judge the people of this earth by how they respond to that message, the message of God's Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may this week, month and year and every year find us boldly, confidently and joyously singing of and proclaiming your glory, your wonderful deeds and the salvation and eternal life you offer us in your son, Jesus. Amen.